Today's episode takes us west to San Bernardino County, California. Deborah Blackcrow was a member of the Arapaho and Oglala Lakota tribes. She was a 39-year-old mother of four when she was found murdered in her home. As details of her case would unfold, shocking revelations of domestic violence would be uncovered that left no doubt of what happened to her. Yet 20 years later, the justice she received may be overturned. This is the Red Justice Project. Our episode today will be a little bit different because we're going to share snippets of a conversation we had with Chantel, who's the daughter of Deborah Blackcrow. As Chelsea mentioned, Deborah was a mother of four kids, Deanna, Chantel, Shantae, and the youngest, Marcus. Deborah was a little bitty thing at only 5'2 and weighing under 120 pounds, sounds kind of like me, and she worked as a nurse. She and her kids had spent time living in a small two-bedroom apartment in Las Vegas. It was in Vegas that she met Rodney Patrick McNeil. The couple moved to San Bernardino, California. Deborah's youngest son, Marcus, lived with Deborah and Patrick in California, and her three other kids lived just over three hours away with their father, who was in the military back in Nevada. Chantel Haynes is her second oldest daughter. Here is Chantel describing her mama. An awesome mom, honestly, like little tiny lady, 5'2", like 115 pounds. Where I have like four siblings and all of them are like six foot tall and up. And then I'm the 5'2 one. Like I got mom, my mom's jeans. <laughs> but she was a really tiny lady, sweet woman. Uh, she loved helping women. And she worked at the Las Vegas uh, Women's Health Center out here when we came. Um, at that time, she was actually divorced with my dad, but my dad was like going to do one more tour, like one more year. Um, he was stationed out in uh, Korea, so my dad uh, took us to my mom. So we actually got an opportunity when I was only 11. I was 11. My brother Shantae was five. My brother Marcus was seven and my sister was 13. But we all finally got to have a moment to live together. But um, I shared a room with my mom at the time because it was like a two bedroom apartment. It was just her and my sister, Deanna, and then three more kids arrived. <laughs> like, yeah. So I got to share the room with my mom and, uh, you know, she was just really sweet. She would hold my hand at night and we would pray together. And, she, you know, she would tell me all the scary stories on the res, like <laughs> her family's like scary stories <laughs> when my uncle's walking from from Pine Ridge to Rapid City and seeing aliens just crazy stuff and seeing the devil getting picked by the devil like just crazy stuff I think but, all um, natives have those um crazy stories too because yeah. I can remember hearing so many of those same stories from my family right serious like it yeah it was it was awesome the neighborhood kids loved her though like they, whenever we moved into another apartment complex, uh, whenever they would see my mom, they're like, you need help with your groceries, Miss Blackcrow? Like, always, always excited to see my mom. She would make like stews for all of the neighborhood kids, like big old pots of like lima bean stew or <laughs> cabbage stew, like, cause she you know, was raised on living on a budget and having to make things last. So she would make big things of them. But of course, it was only us little tiny kids, so we couldn't eat all of it. So she would give it out to the neighborhood kids. She was happy. She was a bubbly, happy woman. 
went to church three times a week, which I didn't care for because <laughs> what kid wants to go to church three times a week? No. <laughs> but yeah, we'd go three times a week and she couldn't sing at all, a lick, but she would be the loudest singer there. Like, <laughs> and I'd like, yeah, she was trying to teach me my Lakota language before she died and just trying to trying to be the best mom that she could be with the circumstances that she had. Mm -hmm. So as she's describing her mama, it also makes me think about my mama. So I remember going to church all the time as a kid with my mama. We would go sometimes three times per week, sometimes more if there was revival or if there was tent meeting or camp meeting or all any other kind of meeting. And also uh, me and my mama shared a room for a significant portion of my childhood as well. And so, you know, thinking about that closeness of mothers and indigenous daughters is definitely something that I think about when I listen to Chantel. Yeah, and I think. Um, for you, Brittany, and myself, the way Chantel spoke about her mama, it just really resonated with us. In our cultures, mothers are the centers of the family. Our matriarchs are the driving forces that kind of bind our families together from one generation to the next. And I think that's why this story is one that's really difficult to talk about, but also really important to share. And that's so true. And then just as a sidebar before we get into the details of Deborah's case, 89% of indigenous women who are murdered are mothers. Wow. So we're talking about thousands of matriarchs, really, that are just ripped away from their families. Just think about the kind of impact that has on one tribal generation to the next. Yeah, exactly. And so then on March 10th, 1997, Rodney Patrick McNeil, who was the husband of Deborah Blackcrow, came home from his job as a parole officer around 1230 in the afternoon to take Deborah to a doctor's appointment with a therapist. It's important to note that Patrick is a black man. At the time, Deborah was about six months pregnant with the couple's daughter. It was a little girl and they were going to name her Samara. When Patrick arrived at the couple's home, he found Deborah in the bathroom. She had been submerged in the bathtub. Deborah had been beaten, stabbed multiple times, and ultimately strangled to death before being submerged in the water. On the bathroom mirror, the word inward lover had been written in Deborah's lipstick. According to Chantel, her mama had also been stabbed so bad to the point where she was almost scalped, and her nose had been broken from the severe beating that she had taken during the attack. It was a cruel and violent death. The house had been completely ransacked, and several of Patrick's firearms had also been stolen. Patrick told the police that he had tried to lift Deborah out of the tub but was unable to move her. And based on the crime scene and the statements made by Patrick, the murder of Deborah was classified as a hate crime. So besides the writing on the mirror, Brittany, and I guess the statement given to police by Patrick, was there any other supporting evidence that someone was targeting Deborah specifically for a hate crime? So no, I couldn't find anything in my own research, but from what I described in her death, it felt like a very personal attack. And also just one other you know, major point of information. So in addition to her being submerged into the water, whoever killed her also poured in multiple, multiple cleaning products to the point that these cleaning products eventually ended up burning her skin. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally speculating with you, but... I can't imagine with the severity of her death, it being a random attack. It feels more like a crime of passion, something personal. I mean, according to reports, Patrick was at work until noon uh, with computer records and witnesses placing him in the office up until when he left to go home to get Deborah. 
And according to Patrick's testimony, he left work between 12.10 and 12.15 and took the eight-minute drive to their home. Records have Patrick calling 911 at 12.32 p.m. Yeah, so it seems at this point that Patrick has a pretty airtight alibi. Yeah, and totally agree with that um, just from the time frame. But from the outside looking in, it does seem that Patrick here is the innocent husband whose wife is the victim of a violent hate crime. That is until you really start digging into the type of person he was based on the testimonies of Deborah's kids and the insurance claims that will become the cornerstone of the case against him. Yeah, and we'll get into that into in a moment, but I think it's also important to note that there was no forced entry into the home. So whoever killed Deborah either had a key to get into the house or knew her personally, like she opened the door for her killer willingly. Yeah, that's a good point. But despite that nugget of knowledge, from everything I could gather, investigators still treated the case as a hate crime. It wasn't until much later that the focus of the investigation turned to Patrick, Deborah's husband. And it wasn't even because police officers really had him pegged as the murderer. According to reports and accounts from Chantel, Patrick had taken out a hefty $100,000 insurance policy on Deborah just months before her death, listing himself as the sole beneficiary in the policy, meaning none of Deborah's four kids would receive anything in the event of her death. And the insurance claim was a major red flag that was brought up to the police, especially after also looking into the several domestic disputes that occurred during Patrick and Deborah's marriage. There were several instances where the police had been called because of threats made on Deborah or because of physical violence. In one instance, Patrick's guns that he owned were confiscated by law enforcement, but were returned to him just a few days later, which is sketch. But it's unclear if he got them back so soon because of his job as a parole or officer and maybe like his closeness with um, law enforcement in general or if this was just standard protocol at the time. Jeez, it seems like from every crime show we watched as a kid until now that someone taken out an insurance policy where they are the sole beneficiary and then that person dies not too long later is always a dead giveaway. Like, have we learned nothing from 48 hours or Dateline? Exactly. I can't believe that Patrick wasn't suspected right away. Or maybe he was, and it just isn't talked about in the news articles that we read. Um, I mean, from everything that I read, like, you know, that wasn't the focus at all. Yeah, and in nothing that I could that I read either. However, based on the domestic violence disputes, testimonies from Deborah's family, the insurance policy, and a neighbor saying that they witnessed Patrick leaving in and out of the house earlier in the day than what he said, it was enough to convict Patrick in 2000, so three years later for the murder of Deborah and their unborn daughter. He was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison. And this is where you would think that the story ends. But here we are, 20 years later, with some important information to share. Chantel told us she has spent years avoiding thinking about Patrick or his life in prison. I mean, who could blame her? He killed her mother and her baby sister. But in our interview, she told us that one day in 2014, she decided to Google her mom's name. It was then she made a shocking revelation. In 2006, the California Innocence Project had taken up Patrick's case and for the past 13 years has been trying to successfully get his sentence commuted. And they are so close to getting him released. So the California Innocence Project's whole defense rests on the fact that the timeline of Deborah's murder and when Patrick was at work does not make sense. So in their timeline, Patrick was at work all morning making phone calls and didn't leave the office until 1215. He arrived home shortly before 1230 p.m. and ran next door to call 
911 from the neighbor's house just two minutes later. And I understand their timeline, but I feel there are so many questions about it. He only worked eight and a half minutes away. Was there really no other time during the morning where he might have snuck away? And also, I mean, why did he go to the neighbors to call 911? Were their landlines not working? Did he not have a cell phone at the time because it's the late 90s? And I also read where the California Innocence Project said that Patrick was found with no blood on his clothing. To me, this is so contradictory to his original story of trying to get Deborah out of the tub. If he'd been trying to help her out, I would think that he would have been covered in blood and kind of soaking wet, at least on his front side. Yet, they're telling us that he had no blood on him, and in the original reports, it was also noted that he was dry when the police arrived. Wow, that's so interesting. And then um, it just makes me think about other cases that I've heard with women who were submerged in water. And then when the police or when the ambulance come, you know, the husband's being seen without being wet. And so it's really like they didn't take any effort to try to save their wives or even perform any kind of like life-saving measures. And so not only that, but the Innocence Project is also saying that the true murderer is Jeff, Patrick's brother even though there is no physical evidence to tie him to the crime. For me, the most upsetting part of this petition for release is that not once during their fight to exonerate Patrick did the California Innocence Project reach out to any member of Deborah's family. It wasn't until Chantel searched for his name that she learned about what was going on, and I think if they had spoke to her or to any other family member, they would probably not have taken on his case. And in our conversation with Chantel, revelations of Patrick's volatile nature came up time and time again. Chantel says that she and her siblings always had a tumultuous relationship with Patrick. He was always standoffish and cold towards them, something that actually drove them to stay with their father over their mother long term. Here she recounts during one of her visits their first experience with domestic violence. The first time that I we witnessed domestic violence and um, they were play fighting and somehow or another her arm got like wrenched behind her back really hard and like lifted up so she like yelped like, really loud and uh, all it was just it was me and my brothers in the living room and we saw it and so my brothers just start crying like immediately like what are you doing with my mom like crying so I'm like what are you doing like yelling at him like what is this like I've never seen that before mm-hmm. and so I didn't know how to process it then because I was only like 12 yeah and um so you know she just dismissed it like they're rough housing playing around so I'm like hmm, okay and then um by that time my father moved back from uh moved back from uh Korea so around that time I was like uh, I want to move back in with my dad. It's crazy to me that even as children, they could immediately sense that something wasn't right about the relationship their mother had with Patrick. And even how quickly they got married. I think they'd only known each other about six months, um, Chantel said, and they were off to California and married. I think another thing to note is that earlier we said that Patrick was always standoffish um, with Deborah's kids, not engaged in their lives at all and barely acknowledged them. But as time went on, he became more vocal to Deborah in front of the kids and even more threatening towards the kids. Here's an example Chantel shared with us in reference to how Patrick treated her sister Deanna, who's the oldest child and definitely the most vocal in her disdain for Patrick. 
There was a time where uh, we went to take my brother Marcus to the airport um, and we were all in the car and Deanna's obviously very vocal about not liking Patrick and why did you bring him like you know this supposed to just be us siblings to take him to the airport and uh, so my mom's trying to be the mediator like everybody calm down relax and uh, when we got out of the car, my, my mom was walking ahead with Marcus and uh, I was walking with Deanna a little behind her and uh, my cousin, uh, my cousin Adrian, but um, he like walked up to Deanna and was like, he said something, but all I heard was, I will beat you with a fucking bat. And I'm like, And one of the hardest things to hear about from Chantel was the constant economic abuse that Patrick sub- subjected her mother to. So Chantel recounted to us how Deborah took her shopping for new school clothes and then when they got back home her mom told her to leave the clothes outside by the trash bin so that Patrick wouldn't see them. And when she left to go back to her dad Chantel was told to go grab the bag of clothes from outside on their way to the car so that Patrick would never know that her mom had bought her these clothes. He started from not talking at all to always like nitpicking, nagging being controlling. My mom was sick one day with pneumonia. Like she always had bronchitis, excuse me. She always had like acute bronchitis. My mom was always sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was pregnant by this time and um, she's sick. And his daughters like pissed the bed and and he's like, Deborah, get up and clean it. And like, my mom's like, I'm sick. <laughs> like, and he was like, Deborah, get up and clean it. And like, I was like, no, you clean it. Like at that point, I'm like 13, but I'm like, no, you clean it. My mom is sick. You should be rubbing her feet. Yeah. Why Why did she have to clean this? And like, I'm I'm sitting here mad, but then my mom, of course, she got up and she cleaned the mess. After that, uh, there was another day where uh, they got into like a weird argument, but he left the house. And when he left the house, uh, my mom, she was crying for a little bit, but then she was like, okay, let me stop crying. And uh, she realized that her glasses were gone. So me and Marcus were looking around the house for her glasses. She couldn't find them. And she was like, okay, well, my contacts are gone. (laughs) Like, okay, well, let's find your contacts. And she couldn't find them. Uh, She's calling Patrick. He's saying he don't have them. She's like, Patrick, where where are my glasses and my contacts? And so she calls the cops. The cops come. We're all looking collectively for like an hour in this house for these glasses and these contacts. Because she can't see. Like my mom was uh, legally blind. She was negative seven in both eyes. So if you don't have those, you're not, you're not mobile. He literally you know, immobilized my mother, <laughs> forced her to stay at this one location like that's control that's like false imprisonment in a sense but the next day i had to learn how to drive a car (laughs) at 13 in california traffic to like get her around and for her to finally plead to him like can you please give my stuff back and magically it reappears Not only did Chantel tell us about other forms of economic abuse, such as only giving Deborah just enough money for gas and food, she also told us about a time when she was taking the kids back to Vegas. Her car was stolen while she was there, and Patrick had emptied the bank account. 
Pregnant with no money for food or a way to get home, Deborah pawned her rings to have money to eat and get back to California. Chantel noted that she believes it was part of Patrick's plan for her to have to pawn the rings because he later claimed them as stolen to his insurance company. He also used his rage to destroy sacred items made by Deborah's father. So we have countless instances leading up to her death of him, you know, just being very manipulative and controlling in their relationship. My mom and him were arguing again, and he decided to go outside in the garage where all my mom's like boxes were her stuff. And uh, he found my grandfather's bone work. So my grandfather was really good at like making the bone knives and the mandelas and the you know dream catchers, all that stuff, decorating buffalo heads and making the, the ceremony outfits. He was very good at that. So my mom had some of this stuff. And so he went out there and he was just like stepping on it and like ripping it up. And at that point, I freaked the fuck. I freaked out. I, I was like almost 13, but I every cuss word I could think of came out of me that day. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with that? Like, oh my God. Cause my grandfather's dead. He, he was, he passed away like maybe two, two, three years before that happened. So these are our heirlooms. These are our family. This is our history and you just demolished it. And it's one thing to break material things that can be replaced, but to destroy sacred items that were made by her deceased father is just trash. And those items can never be replaced. I think it just shows a lack of respect to her as an indigenous woman. And the next part of our story gets into details of Chantel finding out about her mom's murder. Deborah had just recently been with her kids in Las Vegas. And she actually just told them on this trip that she would be back very soon and permanently. And while she didn't say outright that she was leaving Patrick, it was just kind of understood from the things that she said to her kids in the conversation that her moving back to Vegas would be without her husband. However, as we all know by now, before Deborah could ever make that move back to Las Vegas to be with her kids, she was murdered. I think we can speculate here, but I think Chelsea and I both agree that Patrick knew of his wife's plan to leave him. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, leaving an abuser is the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence. One study found in interviews with men who have killed their wives that either threats of separation by their partner or actual separations were most often the precipitating events that led to the murder. You know, I can imagine how shocked Deborah's family was to find out that she had been murdered. And I can only imagine, given the initial evidence, that they would maybe even want to believe Patrick's account of what they found. I mean, this was a man that they had known for some time at this point. He'd clearly shown repeating patterns of domestic violence, but was he capable of murder? But in the immediate aftermath, Chantel noted that Patrick's actions didn't match that of a grieving widower. First off, he immediately wanted Deborah cremated instead of buried. Red flag. Yep. Total red flag. And Brittany, this was something I wasn't sure about. Like, since she had been murdered, I would assume that the police would not have allowed this, um, like the cremation, since the investigation into her murder was still very much open. Do you, do you know if that's like something that usually occurs? I mean, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, as I know you do as well. And a lot of times when 
I've just listened to a lot of different cases where wives are murdered specifically. And since husbands do have the power to choose like how they're buried or like in what way, a lot of times the husbands who are suspected of murder will opt to cremate just because again, it is destroying evidence. And so I don't, I don't know how it's legal if it's a murder. I, I really don't know, especially in Deborah's case. I mean, there's not even the possibility that this was like an accidental death, you know? So mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's just, it's very telling to me. Yeah. I mean, but either way, her family insisted that no, Deborah would not be cremated. Her body was to be sent back to Pine Ridge, uh, which is the reservation that uh, her family lived on to be buried with her Lakota relatives. Her body had been so badly beaten that they couldn't even have an open casket service. Patrick and his brother, Neil, yes, the same Neil that now all those years later, Patrick is accusing of killing his wife, flew out to South Dakota to attend Deborah's funeral and even stayed with her sister, Carmen. Here is Chantel recounting her experience right before the funeral. He showed up to South Dakota. My auntie Susie picked him up and uh, she looks just like my mom. Like those are the two that look the most alike. She picked him up and she was like, oh yeah, Deborah came and saw me last night. (laughs) He's like, what do you mean? And she's like, yeah, you know, she never got to see my daughter. Uh, So uh, last night, my daughter, baby girl, she woke me up like, mom, who's that lady over there? And she's like, oh, it's your auntie, go back to sleep, right? (laughs) And so that night, um, it was time for everybody to go to sleep. And uh, she was like, all right, everybody, good night. She's turning off the lights. And then she said one by one, she just heard click, click, click all the lights are back on she said at that moment i knew he was the one who killed deborah and then one thing you haven't mentioned yet chelsea is how chantel told us that he sat in the back of the funeral services and he didn't even look up he just stayed in the back with his head in his hands and also how he threatened her uncle saying that he had a gun and if the family tried to start something with him you know that he would was prepared to use it And all of this seems like, to me, such bizarre behavior and not that of a grieving husband and also grieving father since, you know, he lost his his child as well, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm glad that just six months later, he was finally arrested on charges for her murder. If it wasn't for his greed, he probably would have gotten away longer with with her death or maybe never been arrested at all. The only reason the police even took him seriously as a suspect was because of the insurance claim. So the insurance company refused to pay out because they suspected foul play after talking to Deborah's sister. So that's when the police started looking into him and why he was eventually arrested. And even once he was arrested, he was still trying to receive the money from the claim. And he even went as far as to try to transfer the money over to his two daughters that he had from a previous relationship. And once again, not for the benefit of the four children Deborah left behind. Yeah, and that should be all telling considering at this point he had known Deborah's kids for years and even her youngest son Marcus lived with them in California. So these right. were kids that he should have had, you know, to the public eye a uh, relationship with. I mean, obviously the public didn't know about all of the domestic disputes, but still. Um, but by the time the case actually went to trial, Chantel was 16 years old. Um, She was asked by the prosecutor what she would like to see happen to Patrick, and this was her response. He did ask me, like, at the end of it, do you want to shoot for the death penalty or do you want to shoot for life? And and I told him, um, 
you know, I want him to stay in prison as long as humanly possible. So he can sit in there every day and think about what he did. With the death penalty off the table, Patrick was tried and convicted of second-degree murder for Deborah and their unborn daughter and sentenced to 30 years to life in prison. And that leads us to where we are at today. In March 2020, due to the work of the California Innocence Project over the past decade or so, Governor Gavin Newsom granted Patrick's clemency petition commuting his sentence. By doing this, he made him eligible to go before the parole board, where he could have a hearing at any time now. And listen, I know that there are a lot of innocence projects out there. Each state probably has their own group, and I know that there are countless nonprofits helping to exonerate the truly innocent. But based on the court case and testimony from Deborah's family, I just don't see how they could believe Patrick's innocent. After Newsom made his announcement, Mike Ramos, who was the prosecutor at the time, actually tweeted to the governor saying, Look, I tried the case of People versus Rodney McNeil. I pray the California governor gave the victim's family notice. He never showed remorse for killing his wife and child. And yeah, let's get into that. So first of all, I cannot believe that when they took up his case that they wouldn't even think to reach out to the victim's family. So whether you believe in his innocence or not, there was still a mother and a baby that were killed. They were the real victims here and their family deserved to be notified at least. So when Chantel reached out to them after discovering their work, she said that they cited a completely separate case in a letter that they wrote back to her. And they have continued to patronize Deborah's family, providing generic, demeaning response after response when they tried to explain all the horrible things he did to them and their mom when she was alive. Chantel also told us that the California Innocence Project said that even if he was truly guilty, by the time she had reached out to them that they had already spent years and years and tons of resources on his case and they would not give up on him until he was free. You know, during our interview with Chantel, she also said that the California Innocence Project referred to Deborah as a white woman and said it was easy to convict Patrick as a black man who killed his white wife. I did some research just to verify this and came across the company Liquid Pictures. On their pro bono page, they actually talk about their work with the California Innocence Project in the video they are making to help Patrick's case. And I'm going to read to you a direct sentence from the blurb they have on their website, which you yourself can also go to their website. We'll link it and you can see the quote for yourself. But it says, however, Patrick is a black man and his wife was a white woman. So when the police arrived and found Patrick at the scene of the crime, they assumed his guilt. Just seeing this on the website alone, knowing that the Innocence Project and Liquid Pictures is trying to erase Deborah's identity, her brownness, her indigenousness is absolutely ridiculous. As we've mentioned in some of our stats before, indigenous women are 10 times as likely to be murdered as the national average. And I can't help but be disgusted at how quickly we are just erased time and time again. Yeah, that just honestly makes me so mad and just makes me think about the ways that indigenous people are consistently and constantly erased in the media. I mean, even Deborah's identity as indigenous, you know, in a murder case where a victim should really be centered, their experiences, their identity should be critical to any kind of reporting that anybody's doing. And then they just completely, you know, erased her. Our erasure, though, has got to be stopped. And I mean, we have the district attorney, Mike Ramos, telling the public that he remembers the case very differently from how the Innocence Project is now spinning it. 
Ramos back in March of this year was quoted also saying that um, Patrick was guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt and that this guy is very manipulative. A neighbor saw him coming in and out of the house. He tried to make it look like a robbery. He also said that he supports the freeing of inmates from prison who have shown good behavior, but he was surprised and shocked by Patrick's commutation. I'll just read you this one last quote from him. Inmates who've shown very good behavior, I get that. I don't think that's wrong to release them, he said. But I think when you kill two people, there's a price to pay. And then Chantel only found out about the actions of the governor in March because she was registered for the Victim Service Registry. It was a resource that she hadn't known about for years. And as a reminder, she was only 13 years old when her mom was killed. Yeah, she and her siblings, they were so young. And this case really opened my eyes to the hardship the family of victims in cases like this have to face. With parole hearings and appeals, it can feel like you're constantly fighting for justice for your loved one, even after you thought the case was over and the person was found guilty. I mean, Chantel said that she and her siblings are collateral victims in the case, and that struck a chord with me because not only were Deborah and her unborn daughter victims of Patrick's, but all of Deborah's kids were. They've lost out on having a lifetime with their mother and baby sister, and now they've had to spend countless hours making sure that justice for their mom is not short-lived. So two months ago, on September 3rd, a parole hearing was held with a split decision on whether or not Patrick should be granted parole. Since there was no decision made, they reconvened on October 20th, and the Board of Commissioners decided to grant him parole. The San Bernardino County's District Attorney's Office was so adamantly opposed to the Commission's decision that the current District Attorney, Jason Anderson, actually wrote a letter. In the letter, Anderson wrote, The parole board's decision regarding double murderer Rodney Patrick McNeil strips away the notice and reliance the victim's family placed in the criminal justice system. These ideals are the bedrock of an ordered society. Today, in this case, those ideals were discarded by government bureaucrats in favor of a man who killed his wife and his daughter. And so then, you know, in thinking about this letter... It just doesn't seem right that this could continue. And so when you have the former DA who's not even involved in the case anymore, but who cares enough to say, you know, that this sentence should not be commuted. And then you also have the current DA who's also, you know, not as involved either because he didn't prosecute the case. I mean, I think that, you know, the accumulation of these two people caring so much about this is telling to me. And then also obviously thinking about Chantel and um, Deborah's other children as well. But the governor agreed to the shortened sentence, as we mentioned before, based on Patrick's commitment to self-improvement during prison. It's unclear where the governor received this information, as the district attorney's office reported that he had showed a lack of adherence to rules multiple times. He has reportedly been caught with cell phones and heroin during his prison stay, which is a complete contrast to the words of Governor Newsom. And then... I always like to think about cases that are similar to the ones that we're covering, you know, that got treated differently. And so when thinking about Deborah Black Crow, I can't help but thinking about Lacey Peterson. So Lacey Peterson was murdered in Modesto, California, which is um, a couple of hours away from San Bernardino County. And her case was sensationalized in the national media. So as I say her name now, many of you probably know who Lacey Peterson is. And like Deborah, Lacey was also pregnant, and she was very far along in her pregnancy, just like Deborah. 
and the media was constantly covering her case day and night all across the nation. So I can remember hearing about her case regularly when I was a child. And her husband was eventually uh, arrested, similarly to Patrick, and convicted of her murder. But unlike Deborah, Lacey was white and from a more affluent place. And also unlike Deborah, there was no history of domestic abuse from her husband. So I can't help but think of the national outcry from the media and folks that followed the Peterson trial if the governor were to also grant Scott clemency for for so-called good behavior. But just as recently as Friday, November 13th, Patrick was set to be granted parole and released from his California prison, but thankfully that was delayed. On Friday, November 20th, Chantel and her supporters had the opportunity to meet with a team from Governor Newsom's office for yet another in-stage plea to not set Patrick free. She told us that the board still has not sent over paperwork to the governor's office. It could now be January 21 when the parole board sends it over, and it will be up to the governor to make the final decision. We are praying that justice stays on the side of Deborah and her kids. And this is where our call to action for you, our listeners, really comes into play. And Chelsea, do you want to share the two active steps that our listeners can take to ensure that Deborah and Samara's justice is not short-lived? Sure. So, Two things. On our social media and our website, we will have links to the change.org petition created by Chantel. I think if you go right now to our Instagram at Red Justice Podcast, you can actually find a link in our bio to the change.org petition. Please sign it and share across your networks. Secondly, we urge you to call or email Governor Newsom and demand that he not release Patrick McNeil. We will have the phone numbers for his office and a script that can be used for the call, as well as an email template that can be sent. Each one of these steps can make a huge difference. There is power in our voices. Deborah Black Crow should be here with us today. She should be the mother to five children, teaching them their Lakota language, cooking for them, making memories, being their matriarch. So thank you for listening, and thank you in advance to those that will sign the petition and contact Governor Newsom. With your help, we can continue to give Deborah the justice she deserves. This is the Red Justice Project. Thanks for listening.